This episode is supported by Active Skin Repair. Active Skin Repair is a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. I just randomly... Vinny was having a toe skin irritation issue and he ended up having this like skin that was really irritating him and it was getting kind of like icky and you know like when kids start to get like little scabs and scratches and then they want to pick at it and it was getting worse and so active skin repair showed up on my doorstep as a result of the sponsorship and I got to put it to use immediately and I got the ointment formula or the like ointment formulation and then also the spray and the spray was perfect so Vinny does not like ointmenty creamy lotiony things on his body but I was able to get out the spray literally took it out of the packaging the day it arrived put it on his toe before he went to bed and the next morning he was like mom my toe's all better. It was literally like this super amazing cure that helped his toes so quickly. So you can use active skin repair on a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, other types of skin damage. It's totally safe, non-toxic, suitable on all types of skin, even parts of the body where you might have rosacea or eczema or have acne prone skin. This is also safe for the youngest members of your family up to the oldest. So now you have one simple solution for your family's skin health needs. With over 500 thousand happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews and super safe and clean ingredients active skin repair is something that you want to have on hand for your family so to get your own active skin repair go to activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and get 20 percent off your order when you use the code shameless that's activeskinrepair.com use the code shameless for 20 percent off your order activeskinrepair.com code shameless This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 354 with Laura Cathcart-Robbins. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, as well as any discount codes from our sponsors, can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 354. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community, so be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Laura Cathcart-Robbins is a shameless mom, a writer, and a recovery thriver and survivor. In September 2018, she found herself in an all-too-familiar situation. She was the only one in the room. She was the only black woman in the room at Brave Magic, a famed writer's retreat. After it was over, she wrote about her only one experience in the Huffington Post, and comments started flooding into her DMs from people of all races, ethnicities, creeds, and nationalities who had felt othered. Laura now hosts the podcast, The Only One in the Room, where she interviews a person about their only one story in each episode. On her show, you'll hear raw, vulnerable accounts from people who are like most of us. Laura's hope is that The Only One in the Room will inspire a change of perspective in how we see and hear each other's stories. She hopes to make you think twice before judging the person standing next to you at a party, in the pickup line at school, or in a crowded subway car. Laura's show and her work is for anyone who has ever felt alone in a room full of people, which is to say her show and her work are for everyone. I've actually listened to multiple episodes of her podcast, but I heard her interview one of my favorites, Stephanie Wilder Taylor, who is the host of For Crying Out Loud, 
show I talk about all the time here. And I heard Laura do this interview with Stephanie, and I just had a huge respect for both of them. They talked about being the only sober one in the room, in Stephanie's instance, of being the only one in the room. And right away, I was like, I need to get Laura on this show. So I reached out to her. She was so awesome and gracious to come on the show. But since then, I've listened to more episodes of The Only One in the Room. And I can tell you that every story and situation is relatable and beautiful. And the way that Laura dives into this topic and into each individual story is so thoughtful and sensitive and really, really deeply touching. So I definitely want you to go check out The Only One in the Room after you listen to this interview with Laura, because I do want you to listen in to hear Laura share what it's like to be the only black person in the room in 2018. I will say when we were talking about this, I was like, your story of being in the only black woman in the room is like really old, right? Like this did not just happen. Oh no, it happened in 2018. You're also going to hear Laura share the difference between being visible in your onlyness versus invisible in your onlyness, like addiction, divorce, infertility, having a child with special needs. She's going to talk about what it feels like to be the only one in the room and how we've all been the only one in the room at some point. She'll share the isolation of onlyness and the antidote. And she's going to talk about how to create opportunities and cultivate your biggest gifts from your onlyness. So I'm so grateful to have Laura on the show. I know you're going to really enjoy hearing her story and you're going to want to follow up by subscribing to the Only One in the Room podcast. So with all that said, I'm so excited to introduce you to Laura Cathcart Robbins. Laura Cathcart Robbins, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited and truly honored to have you here today. Oh, thank you, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. So I'm going to let people know how I found you. I only listen to one parenting podcast and I put parenting in quotes, but I listen to for crying out loud and everyone, I talk about it all the time. It's like my favorite kind of non-parenting podcast. And you interviewed the host of that show, Stephanie Wilder Taylor, and she was talking about her sobriety and being the only one in the room as a sober person. That's right. It was a captivating interview. And then I got sucked into your story and everything that you're doing around being the only one in the room. So tell us just a little bit about the dynamics of your personal and professional life beyond your bio and what's happening right now that's exciting. Okay, so I'm a freelance writer. This is on my bio, but I'm a freelance <laughs> writer. I'm a storyteller. I'm getting prepared for a Moth Grand Slam next month. Fun. Yeah, really fun. And I'm a podcaster. I have a podcast called The Only One in the Room as you just said, and going back, so I'm 54, and when I was in my 20s, I was an entertainment publicist. I worked for a corporate entertainment company, and then I created my own company called Cathcart Public Relations, and I was the only black entertainment publicist in Los Angeles at the time. That's actually not true. There were others, but they didn't own their own firms. I was the only one who had her own shingle. So I got a lot of work from all the studios and all the labels and everybody that had a quote-unquote urban project, which is code for black, I got it. And so that was the beginning of my professional life. And then when I got married, I married a young actor who was coming off a show called Head of the Class, and his name is Brian Robbins. And he had been on that show for five years. He was just starting to direct He and I fell in love and we got married when I was about 30. And then I shuttered my company as soon as I got pregnant with my now 21-year-old son, Miles. Mm -hmm. So there was a time span of 21 years where I didn't do anything professionally. I was just mommy. 
to Miles and his son, his son, his brother, Justin, my other son, was born the following year. So they were born in 98, 99. And I raised them until I didn't, well, I, I'm still raising them because yeah. I'm definitely their assistants, both of them. <laughs> but, okay, also just really quickly, I've been divorced for 11 years mm. from Brian and I've been in a relationship for 11 years with Scott, who's my partner, and he's also the co-producer and co-host of my podcast. But after I got divorced, I went into treatment for a drug and alcohol addiction at the same time that I got divorced. So when I started coming out of the divorce and started kind of coming into my first year of sobriety, I started writing again. And I had always kind of written, but I hadn't written professionally. And I started writing then, and I had a lot to write about. So that's kind of what took me on this path where I became like a freelance writer. And that kind of informed my storytelling and the podcasting came out of that article that I wrote for the Huffington Post. So I went down a bit of a rabbit hole researching for this interview where I read all your articles on Huffington Post and they're all phenomenal. And all of them I felt like just spoke to places, phases, times, and spaces that are relatable to women in different ways at different times of their life. Mm. And they were all deeply personal. And what I really appreciated, and this made me see how conditioned I am to tying everything up in a bow, I so appreciated how raw your writing was and that you didn't try to end it on like, uh, and now it's all fixed. And so here we go. It's great. Kind of a note. You were like, this is raw and dirty and ugly and we're going to end it right there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you appreciated that. Yeah. it's. Oh, I thought it was so relatable because that's real life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, you know, actually going back to Stephanie Wilder Taylor, she was one of my first writing teachers in sobriety. She's an amazing writer. She's a really accomplished, you know, published author, award-winning author. And, you know, I've been begging her to do more, but she hasn't yet. But she used to do this great little writing class with like eight of us in a back house here in Los Angeles. And we would create work in there. And she was one of the first people who kind of guided me toward not tying it up in a bow. Mm -hmm. She's like, this is interesting. The bow is not interesting. <laughs> no one wants right, to hear right. Right, how neatly it was packaged. This is the stuff that is relatable, like you just said. So I have to give her the shout out and the credit for that. And thank you for seeing that. Yeah. So I will link to all of the three articles that I read because they're all on different topics and all just touch on really, I think, big topics in womanhood and motherhood. Yeah. Uh, I want to speak specifically about the one that went viral. So take us back to the article about being the only one in the room, the events leading up to the article and how you found yourself in the situation. Okay. Yeah. So I went to the brave magic retreat that's Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strades. uh, I I believe they're doing it annually now. The year before had been the, the first one. So I went to the second one, but I think they're planning to do it every year. So I went with women that I've met only virtually. I have a writer's group that I'm in and we've never met each other, but we meet every month. So they were all going, I decided to go. And was this just like one year ago, two years ago, just for frame of reference? It was one year ago. Well, it'll be one year in September. Yeah. Okay. Cause that was striking to me as well. That when I first started reading, I was like, Oh, this was back like eight, nine, 10, 12 years ago. And then I was like, okay, this is like very recent history. And I think that's important. It is important. And, you know, just a little bit of my background, and I say this in the article, but 
I'm very used to being the only black person in any room I'm in. I grew up that way. I went to independent schools. There weren't any black kids in my schools. In the Cambridge Montessori school, there wasn't another black child. There was a black principal, but there wasn't another black child. In various situations, you know, I serve on a board. I'm the only black person on the board. I'm on an advisory board for a homeless shelter. I'm the only black person there. I'm often the only person in, you know, in, in different positions on committee levels at my kids' schools. So I'm very used to it. I usually don't make too big of a deal out of it. It doesn't hurt my feelings or anything anymore. But I, you know, I'll notice if I am. And, you know, there's a thing called code switching, which I do really well, which is when I'm in an all-white environment, I fit in. Mm-hmm. And when I'm with Black people, I'm different. But I would probably say I'm more myself. But I don't know if that's true anymore because I've been doing this for 54 years. So it might yeah. be 50. So anyway, so I get to this retreat and registering for it. You know, I have an awareness of who the fans are of Elizabeth Gilbert and Cheryl Strait. I was not under the impression that there was going to be a really diverse audience there, visually anyway. You know, their fans are mainly white and somewhere around their ages. And, you know, I was going because I'm really big fans of both of them. And Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, uh, just really changed how I wrote. I have it next to me on my desk right now. And I refer to it all the time when I'm writing. And I loved Wild. You know, I loved that book. I just thought it was what you said about my writing, which I really appreciated, that raw, honest, wasn't tying it up in a bow just her journey. And I really related to it. So I wanted to be there and see them and just kind of soak up anything they could give us. And, you know, when I got there and I was standing in line to check in, there were so many people, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And I didn't notice that I was the only black person in line until people started looking at me, turning around to look at me. I would see people talk and then they turn around and look at me. And I was clearly the tallest person there. (laughs) So that's sometimes a thing. And then, you know, I have my hair is curly and natural. So that's another thing that people look at. But I knew this was different because I felt it before. This episode is supported by Mysteries About True Histories, a podcast for your kiddos. So from the creators of the hit podcast, Who Smarted? And Netflix's Brainchild comes the adventurous world of mysteries about true histories, affectionately known as math. Every episode follows Max and Molly, who have just been recruited into a secret order of problem solvers on an adventure through time packed with puzzles, hidden equations, history, and laughs, making learning cool. This podcast is perfect for ages six and up, and new episodes drop every Thursday, each stacked with so much laughter that your kiddos won't even realize how much they're learning. I love a show where, as a parent, you're like, hey, let's listen or watch this or whatever. And your kids are thinking they're like getting extra device time or what have you. And you're like, they're learning right now. So it feels like such a big win. So I want you to go check out Mysteries About True Histories wherever you listen to podcasts. You can tune into Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you're listening to this podcast. So go check out Mysteries About True Histories 
to listen in and have some fun with your kid while they learn today. This episode is supported by AquaTrue. Having clean, safe water is the last thing you want to worry about. But unfortunately, according to extensive research by the Environmental Working Group, three out of four, yes, three out of four homes in America have harmful contaminants in their tap water. So that's why you got to check out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers have a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process. And their countertop purifiers, which is what we have, take no installation or plumbing, and they remove 50 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters, and they're specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, which can lead to potentially adverse health effects like cancer, endocrine system disruption, and liver toxicity, which is part of what makes AquaTrue so special, unique, and important in terms of how they are able to filter water. They also have water purifiers to fit every type of home. So like the installation-free countertop purifier that we have at our house to higher capacity under sink options. They even have Wi-Fi connected purifiers and mineral boost options. So I'm so excited about our new AquaTrue. And here's the thing. I swear it's like a gentle reminder to actually drink more water every time you walk into your kitchen. So we are drinking more water now and also more clean water. So more water that is more clean. It feels like a double win. I'm feeling pretty impressed with us. I feel like sink water, tap water becomes invisible at a certain point. And when I see the purifier on my counter, it's like many time a day reminder to like, keep drinking, keep drinking. So I want you to check out AquaTrue for yourself and for your family. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and that makes it a great gift as well. Today, my listeners can receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout. That's 20% off any AquaTrue purifier when you go to AquaTrue.com and use the code SHAMELESS. S-H-A-M-E-L-E-S-S. AquaTrue.com code SHAMELESS. And, you know, I texted my writing group and said, I'm here. I'll be easy to spot. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Because we had never met in person. I mean, they've seen me, but they, right. so they all came running up and, you know, we sat down for dinner a couple hours later and I said, you guys, you know, I think I'm the only black person here. And they all said in unison, you are, we've been looking around too. Like they were appalled, you know, oh, that yeah. there was this. And then when I found out that there were 600 people there and that includes the people who work there and that I was the only black one that I really couldn't wrap my head around it. Yeah. You know, and, and again, I wasn't hurt by it. I was just kind of stunned that someone could create an event this big, you know, in 2018. That's, you know, that's supposed to be about empowerment and inclusivity and not even think, oh, none of the people that have registered or all the people that have registered are white. Mm-hmm. Maybe we need to look at this through the lens of diversity or inclusivity, like real inclusivity. Right. That's so interesting. And I think it's so important that white women hear your story, hear your perspective, because it's shocking to me that you had the sense that people were turning around in line, like recognizing like, oh, there's mm-hmm. one black person. Like you were being recognized for your race and for standing out yeah. in your race in a room in 2018, like mm-hmm. not in 1998, right. in 2018. Yeah. And that's what was stunning to me as well. I just, Another thing, we were in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It is a very white place. (laughs) Like, there were all these indicators that it might have leaned toward that way. And I would not have written an article if there had been six black people there, right? right? I would have expected there to be just a, a, you know, flattering, right? Right. (laughs) But not none. Right. Yeah. 
you've been the only person in the room in multiple contexts now. So you were talking specifically around being the only black person in the room, but I would imagine as someone who's gone through recovery, as someone who's gone through a divorce, mm-hmm. you've probably been the only person in the room in a few different contexts and felt that. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Like how you felt that in different areas of your life? Yeah, that's a great question. And it is absolutely true. And that actually it leads into why I thought the podcast would be a good idea because First of all, you know, I wrote this article when I got back and I submitted it to the Huffington Post and Emily McCombs is the deputy editor there. She's amazing. I sent it to her on a Sunday night. It went live Monday morning. Like she got it. And I sent it on a Sunday night thinking no one's going to see it. Right. (laughs) Like I'll hear her back, you know, in a week or so. And as soon as it went live, people started, you know, sending me direct messages and comments and you know, I say this in the the trailer for the podcast and in the intro, but I thought they were all going to be from black people and almost none of them were. There were a few, but most of them were for people who just felt othered. And, you know, and I thought about it after I started getting these comments, like what you just said, you know, being, I've been the only single person in the room, you know, prior to my divorce. And that's weird. You know, that, that is a feeling of othering when everybody else is all coupled up. Yeah. You know, my kids, like Miles, my 21-year-old, who is an amazingly independent, functional, ridiculously confident adult, had almost crippling dyslexia growing up. And that's the very, very isolating thing, not just for him, but for me, mm-hmm. because my kid was never going to be like his peers. You mm-hmm. know, we weren't going to ever be able to participate in the classroom the same way other kids were and their parents. Mm-hmm and how work was achieved and how much work he had to do outside of the classroom in order to just keep up and blah, blah, blah. So there's that. So I've been that mom. Then I was definitely the only mom who was doing everything she could to hide a really, really just menacing, nefarious addiction. And I really was that mom who kept it together in spite of it. That's really isolating. And your article about that, which I'll link to in the show notes, talks about you were like president of the PTA at the time. I was. I was. And then I was asked to join the board, and I did. And I was getting to All while you're refilling water bottles at your house with water so that your husband doesn't know how much you're drinking. Oh, yeah. No, I was refilling them with liquor. What I was doing was ordering, like, we have this place called Vendron Liquors here. And they deliver. So I would order everything that we were out of while he was at work and then refill it with that same thing and get rid of the bottles. Um, You know, it was like farming. It was a lot of work. I had to get up, make sure that everything looked all right every day, you know, kind of, and then, you know, beg my doctors for refills on my pills because I didn't get to the point where I bought them illegally. I'm sure I would have if I continued. But at that point, I was just getting them from my doctors and coming up with different excuses as to why I needed refills early or again or blah, 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 and refilling those liquor bottles. And, you know, I was still playing tennis. I was still working out. I was still getting my nails and hair done regularly. I was still doing lunch with the girls. I was still showing up. I was doing pick up and drop off and I was dying. I think that's a different aspect of being the only one in the room. Like it's one thing when it's a visible Yes. It's only one in the room scenario versus something that is not. Right. Um, you and I talked a little bit in our pre-interview about infertility. And so for me, like infertility was something that like people couldn't see. And so when people talked about, 
oh my gosh, I accidentally got pregnant again. What am I going to do? And I was like, are you kidding? Yeah. Me? <laughs> yeah. You know how much I hate you right now. But like people didn't know that mm-hmm. this was something that was crippling my life. And I would imagine not to compare infertility to addiction because they're so different, but that they're both these like hidden things that no one knows are going on that are like you said, like crippling your life and consuming your life. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think you can correlate them because of that. You're dealing with something that is not available to the public. Right. <laughs> you're not going to tell everybody you meet. You can't trust very many people with it. It's very personal. It's deeply personal, both things, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, an addiction is, is, you know, compared to even 20 years ago, the stigma that's attached to it is lifted greatly, mm-hmm. but there is something, you know, being a mom, being a mom with little kids and having to admit that you're an addict and an alcoholic, that is no joke. Like, right. That is some real humiliation and humility. And I had never been able, I mean, I had always been able to navigate around having to do anything like that in my life. Just like I didn't graduate from high school and I never went to college and I just kind of skirted those issues and got jobs and got positions and figured it out. Like the fact that I hadn't, I didn't have a formal education wasn't going to stop me from achieving my goals. And I didn't see any reason to let addiction and alcoholism stop me from being a great mom and being a great wife and being a great friend, but it was killing me. Like it was catching up to me. I couldn't navigate around it. What's the comparison being the only one in the room with something visible versus invisible, like being the only black woman in the room versus being the only closet addict in the room? You know, what's interesting is I think that, (laughs) and people might disagree with me, but I think that I got more empathy for being the only addict in the room. Really? Um, Yeah. Being the only black person in the room, you know, there are people like you who are empathetic and enlightened and curious and are eager to see a level playing field. But most people are kind of like, Oh, come on. Are you still talking about that? Like you, Mm. we should be over that now. Right. And, or I don't see you as black. I don't see color. I just see you, which is, you know, supremely insulting um, to a person of color. That is our primary identity. Right. Um, so if you don't see color, you don't see us, et cetera. And I think most people know that now, or, or most people who live in metropolitan areas know that. I don't know about different areas of the country, but yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I think there's different levels of culturally acceptable compassion. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it kind of comes down to that, that there's certain things culturally that we are like culturally more empathetic or compassionate about. And so I would say like mental health has become one of those things mm-hmm. where I'll, you know, over the last handful of years to talk openly about, and I would put addiction in there with that, but talking about addiction, talking about depression, talking about anxiety, like those kinds of things. There's a lot more compassion around that. Yeah. And I would really like to see race being like above all of that. I mean, just because it's of the history associated with it. So that's really interesting to me that you have felt more compassion around your story of addiction Mm -hmm. than around. Absolutely. And I wrote an article once about compassion fatigue, which Mm -hmm. is kind of what you're hitting on there, that we have that in Los Angeles, we absolutely have compassion fatigue for our homeless population. Yeah, we have that in Seattle. Yeah, we don't have any more compassion for people who are living on the streets. And there's no solution there, right? Because 
our compassion's running out. And so we're desensitized and we don't see it and we don't care about it anymore. And I think a lot of people have compassion fatigue when it comes to issues of race. Yeah. And yeah. are just like tired of hearing something that we've, and I'm putting that in air quotes, been harping on for 400 years and can't we move on to something else? And, you know, affirmative actions being phased out of different institutions. People are tired of trying to level the playing field. And maybe, you know, it should have been leveled by now, but it's not. And the fact that it should have been, I think, in some people's minds gives them that compassion fatigue. I wonder also that there is an uncomfortable sense of responsibility that comes with acknowledging that racism is still a problem. And there's a level of responsibility that comes in admitting that. Whereas like if my friend is an addict or my friend is going through a divorce or my friend is going through, you know, a hard time or has a child who's transgender or whatever the situation might be, that's not something that I need to take responsibility. Like I can be a good friend during that situation, but I don't need to say like on a systemic level, we need to do better. And with race, that's the case. And so I wonder if some of that compassion fatigue comes from the discomfort around needing to take responsibility. Mm -hmm. I think that's brilliant. And I'm going to use that in my next diversity, (laughs) equity, and inclusion meeting. (laughs) Yeah, go for it. I mean, because that's what I see. And I've had conversations with people around, and I just led my first live event in Seattle for my community um, a few months ago. And this was something that came up for me as someone who's been really tried to be very proactive about having diverse guests and wanting to build diverse communities. And I screwed up with my initial speaker lineup and- Mm -hmm didn't have a black woman in my initial speaker lineup. I ended up having black women on my panel, but that wasn't announced at the same time. And it turned into this big, huge thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, I completely screwed this up. And I have to take responsibility for that. And it was ridiculously uncomfortable. And I like got on Facebook live to thousands of people and had to own it. But I was like, this is the only way forward. (laughs) It has to be super uncomfortable. Like I have to do the hard thing. And I feel like that's the only right way to go about it. And I learned a really valuable lesson and people in my community, it was really interesting to see (laughs) the response that I got as I came out into this big Facebook live and all my white friends and all the white comments were like, well done. Good for you. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, this is so not what I want. Like I'm not here for the accolades. And then all my friends of color and black women especially were messaging me privately saying like, thank you for doing that. And also you need to keep doing more. Like you're not let off the hook just because you did a public apology. And I was like, thank you. Yes. Like I need to hear that. And we all need to hear that. So I think that this level of responsibility and accountability is so crucial and so critical and it's also hard, but that's what Mm -hmm. we have to do. Yeah. And being intentional like that, You know, it is really important and it's mainly uncomfortable to do. It erases the ability to be extemporaneous, Mm -hmm. right? Or to go purely on a meritocracy, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, these works are the ones that I value the most. So I'm going to use these regardless of who wrote them or or have these people, you know, come and talk about them regardless of who wrote them. But to really be intentional in that. And I'm doing that, you know, as much as I can with my podcast just to, really bringing guests and I'm very, very aware of who's going to connect in. If I have, you know, the first season is very female heavy, which, you know, it's fine, but you know, this season two, I'm putting in more men because I want to make sure that 
they can see themselves in it. Yeah. So, you know, I have brown people, I have black people, I have Asian people, I have, you know, they all have great stories. Like they have to have great stories, but I have to intentionally curate mm-hmm. a, a truly diverse group of people because that is a reflection of the audience, right? And who we are. I mean, this is not just America, you know, it's everywhere. It's international. Right. The people who listen in. Yeah. So yeah, that intentionality is uncomfortable. But I think if we automate it as a society, like it's just another thing on our checklist is to make sure have we been intentional about who we brought on to make sure that everybody is represented in some way, shape or form or as close as possible. I mean, there are way too many differences in this world to represent everybody all the time, but don't want to just pull on people who only just represent everybody who don't have a great story. That's the other thing. Yeah. 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 What was it like, something that came to mind is you mentioned that Elizabeth Gilbert was someone that you admired her writing so much and especially Mm -hmm. in Big Magic. So you went to this event with these two people who you really held up in high regard as mentors. To write an article that completely calls out their event on this level, what were your fears around that and did you get a response from either of them? That's interesting. I didn't have any fears about calling them out because when I wrote it, I didn't actually see it as calling them out. I thought... I was calling out the idea. I actually didn't even know. I wasn't holding those two people responsible. I assumed that someone else had put this together. Okay. That someone had put it together and invited them. That was my assumption at the time. Okay. So it didn't occur to me that Elizabeth Gilbert or Cheryl Strayed would have looked at the list of people who were coming and gotten information about the demographics. Right. You know, I assume that someone put this event on, you know, was paying them to show up there. And then also, you know, they got there and they saw the audience and that was the first time they knew who it was. Okay. So in my mind, whoever curated it, whoever, you know, hired them to come in or paid them to come in rather, and then, you know, put it on Facebook and however they did that, it was actually Cheryl Strait put a Facebook post out. That's how I saw it. But however they advertised it, that's who I thought I was calling out. And I wasn't sure who that was. I didn't know if it was the actual facility or if there was like a PR company or a marketing company or if there was someone else. But I was not thinking about those two women specifically. So I did later (laughs) when I started getting responses. (laughs) And I really just wanted my voice and my point of view to be heard and felt because What I felt was like everybody else that went there and left just thought it was this amazing retreat, which it was. But there's a word for this, and I can't think of it right now. But it was race blind. (laughs) And that's not the right word. But there was nothing there that said to me as a black woman, you were welcome here, too. There was nothing there that said you were invited here, too. Right, right. And it felt and looked like everyone else was welcome and invited intentionally. So I wanted to say, hey, I really enjoyed it, which I did. Mm -hmm. I got a lot out of it. But there is this whole other point of view that nobody even realized was happening, (laughs) except for me, because I was the only one there. There wasn't anybody for me to look across the room at and be like, sister, are you hearing this this way? Yeah. Or they just said this. Do, what do you think of that? Do they know that that means this to us? Mm-hmm. You know, whatever it might be. 
but there was no us. It was just me. So I had no one to share those experiences with, even, you know, no allies, which it's not normal to have that many people in a room and someone not have an ally. Right. Yeah. And 600 people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So I wrote it, you know, with a little trepidation about calling out the system, but not about those two women. I didn't think about that when I wrote it. I also Honestly, Sarah, I didn't think it was going to get published. I hadn't published anything before that. Oh. I didn't publish anything. And so I went in the... You were like, I'll just put this in, slide it in on a Sunday night, and like in a couple (laughs) months, we'll see what happens. (laughs) Yeah. Or I thought, you know, I might get feedback about what kind of pieces she's looking for. Right. And truly, I took another writing class, Jessica Enriquez. I don't know if you know her. No, I'm not familiar. Third name. It might be Hernandez. But anyway, I'll look it up. <laughs> she, she does an online writing class. She's amazing. And she's been published in a bunch of places. And so in order to get into her class, you had to submit a writing sample. I submitted this because I had just written it. I thought I was going to post it as a blog. Okay. And she said, one, you're in the class. Two, you need to send this out. This oh. is gold. And I was like, really? So she gave me a couple of things to add. She's like, I would put in more questions. Um, which I did toward the end, like, you know, did they, I don't even remember what I said in the article, but like, basically I was asking, you know, did you even think about us, right? Do you want our stories? Do our stories matter? Mm. This episode is supported by a podcast I want to share with you called Understood Explains. So this show is about navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences, which can be so confusing. And so every uh, season of the show is around a different theme. So there's a season on special education, there's a season on ADHD diagnosis for adults, and the current season is all about IEPs. I love this podcast because the episodes are 10 to 15 minutes long. So if you are short on time or short on focus, you can take this content in super quickly, easily. It's very digestible. And the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert, Juliana Utube. So Juliana talks all about how to navigate educational plans, IEPs. She talks about the differences between IEPs and 504 plans. She really breaks things down in a really clear and simple way so that you have some of those questions that you might be thinking around, like, does this pertain to my child? Is this something I need to be looking into? Like, where do we go from here? Where do I go if I have questions? Juliana has you covered. She explains so many different things and so many different little pieces and nuance of IEPs and special education and different things on Understood Explains. So I want you to go check it out wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can go listen to Understood Explains. Just go into your podcast app, do a search for Understood Explains, and it will pop right up. Click on it, pick your episode, and get the answers that you've been looking for and the support that you need around different learning differences and differences in school. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So she was the one who suggested is turning that from a statement into a question, and I think it was really powerful that way. Yeah. Yeah. And then she just said, send it out. And this was like a, you know, a 15 minute exchange by email. Like she sent it, I sent it back, she sent it. And then I sent it out to the Huffington Post. Oh my gosh. No, no, I was, so I didn't really think too much about what might happen if it got published before I sent it. Cause I didn't think that it would. Right. 
what is the power in sharing our onlyness with others? I'm imagining that, I mean, clearly some yeah. power came out of this for you. Yeah. But where have you, now that you are interviewing other people in their only one scenarios on your show, where do you see the power in sharing our only experiences with other people? Well, you know, truly the antidote for shame and isolation is community. Right. I like to think of 12-step recovery as like the first Me Too movement. Mm. because the reason it works, 12-step recovery, is you share your story in a room full of people who all say me too. And I don't know why that works, but it does because it's been, you know, around the way that it exists now for over 80 years and, you know, exponentially grown year by year by year by year. And people like me, you know, I'll be sober 11 years this summer you know, this huge congratulations. Oh, thank you. But I'm a baby in the rooms here. You know, mm-hmm. the, most of the people here are 30, 40 years, 50 wow. years over. So, so that works, that me too thing works. And then, you know, with people who have survived different traumas, um, specifically sexual, of course, and the hashtag me too movement came out. But the idea that I'm the only one who is having this experience is completely isolating. And I'm not able to share it with somebody until I know that somebody else has that experience. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm not able to relate it to somebody until I know that somebody else has that experience. I could share it, but there's not much gratification in sharing something unless somebody can mirror it back. Right, exactly. We did an activity at the beginning of my event at Shameless MomCon where we talked about the isolation that exists when we don't share because, like you just said, there's many people who often can relate, but they don't know that we can be relatable with each other until we all start to share Mm -hmm. and show up in those ways and let our guards down. And I love that you said the antidote to shame and isolation is community because, I mean, that's where you get the connection. And so clearly the connection or the antidote to isolation is connection, but you have to be willing to expose your shame to get there. Yeah. Yeah. It takes courage. Yes. Yes. And I think so that actually ties right into my next question. So it does take courage. And how can we turn our onlyness into an opportunity and a gift? Because like you said, it takes courage. It's much easier to continue to be the mom who's hiding the drinking and showing up at the PTA meetings and all those things, or to even put post-recovery, think in your head like, well, I did that thing, but I don't ever need to talk about that. Like no one ever needs to know that I was the mom hiding right. the drinking at the PTA meeting. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about turning our onlyness into an opportunity and a gift. Well, I mean, you know, clearly my writing that piece turned my being the only one in that room into a career for me. (laughs) (laughs) After that piece came out, then, I mean, I can't even tell you how many emails I got and opportunities that came out of it. And, you know, the podcast is one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the storytelling kind of happened at the same time. But, you know, and I was asked to curate a panel at the San Diego Writers Festival, which I did, which was amazing. That was a direct result of them reading my Huffington Post piece. I'm on their advisory board in perpetuity, and we're planning next year. It's like, it's all this stuff that I hadn't, you know, it is a little bit of the imposter syndrome, because I'm highly underqualified for any of this. I'm not qualified for you to be interviewing me right now. <laughs> that is so not true. That is so not true. So I have a big thing. I just keep saying I want to get t-shirts made that say hashtag qualified because I think yes. the only person that qualifies any of us for anything is ourselves. 
And so like you get to decide if you're qualified, but most of us decide that we're not qualified and we don't ever step into our gifts because we assume we're not qualified because we don't give ourselves permission to qualify ourselves. We wait for someone else to do it. That is so true. And the other layer for me is I'm deeply ashamed of being found out as blank. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a community that's like, you know, as you nicely illustrated when I was asked to be parent association president and then asked to be on the board. I had a community that really respected me and believed that I had it all together. So to reveal these things to them, which I believe would alter their perception of me, that was a non-starter. You know, I wasn't going to do that. I don't want the perception of anybody, of how they view me altered in any way. I want to be better than, (laughs) I want to be the same as everybody else. And there's a status there that I enjoy. And that sounds really weird to admit, but it's true. So part of my process in recovery, this honesty that you're referring to is, is me being authentic and not being afraid to be loved as I am authentically. Like, you know, I'm not a high school or college graduate. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a drug addict. I'm divorced. I'm, you know, living with my boyfriend who I met in treatment Mm. and I met the hour I checked into treatment. I was actually wondering, because I noticed in the last episode I listened to of your show that you both referenced being in recovery. And I was like, oh, I wonder how, (laughs) I'm sure that's like the common first question. Oh, I wonder how they met. (laughs) Yeah. And for a long time, you know, I didn't know what to say (laughs) (laughs) because I wasn't sure, like I wasn't sharing my recovery with everybody. Right. And so I couldn't say that I met my boyfriend in treatment. It was very dicey. I'm also, for myself, I'm very bound to honesty. Mm. And so that was odd for me to kind of skirt around. But now everybody knows. But all those things, you know, are things that I would have been so ashamed to admit prior to getting sober that I would have kept them buried. And as far away from you, not you, Sarah, but as far away from anyone as possible. Right. So, you know... To do this thing as honestly as I can, to tell my story, my truth as honestly as I can, you know, is scary, but it's actually not very scary anymore because I've been doing it for a while now. Right. It's not very brave anymore Mm. because it doesn't really take courage. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you just went through like the list of all the things. And now as you've shared, like each of those things you have special, deeply rooted, special connections with anyone who can relate to any of those things. So it provides the opportunity for you to have these really profoundly, you know, deep relationships because you're coming from that place of openness and honesty around who you are, where you come from, what your story is, and you're living in your story as a strength versus living in your story as a struggle. And I think that that creates fuel behind everything that you're doing. I'm sure that Like someone could look through the list that you just gave and be like, these are all things, you know, that would hold someone back their entire life. Mm -hmm. Or these are all things that like allow you to be Oprah because you survived (laughs) all the things, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like you just build the stage and speak and preach and share the Mm -hmm. stories. And because everyone now has a place to connect from where they can connect with you. Yeah. And if they can't connect to being an alcoholic or a drug addict or a black woman or divorced or all that, what I, my hope is that when I write and express how it feels, that they could connect with the feelings. Yes. Even yes. if they can't connect with those, you know, precise circumstances. Right. Because not everybody will be able to. And that was the feedback I got from my Huffington Post piece. People 
connected to the feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's why there's like a, you know, a 70 year old woman who wrote to me who feels like she's overweight and went in to take a yoga class and everybody turned to stare at her and she left. And, you know, she and I messaged back and forth for about three weeks because she felt like me, you know, she absolutely connected to it. It didn't matter that it wasn't race. She walked in and felt othered. I mean, the difference was she left. I could have, um, but I would have lost a lot of money. So I really (laughs) wasn't trying to leave. (laughs) But I'm sure I've left other circumstances where I've walked in and be like, oh, no, I'm not doing this. I'm going to stand out too much here. I can't think of anything, but I'm sure I have in the past. And that is the magic, really, of people connecting to those feelings and then feeling free enough to express their own experience to share it with someone. Yes. So let's tie this into being a shameless mom and tell us how you currently show up as a shameless mom. Well, you know, I was thinking the other day, I had a friend of mine on the podcast last week, I think her episode dropped and she was the only mom who lost her son in a tragic accident. Mm -hmm. She lost him. He was 11 years old. He died in 2012 in a jet skiing accident. Someone ran him over when he was on an interstate on the lake. And in the podcast, she talks about, she gets that call that no parent wants to get. And I was thinking about that. You know, her whole interview haunted me for a while. And, and, I didn't and, listen to it on purpose. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, I can't with a mom of a, as a mom. Yeah, no, but you have to hear where she is with it now. Okay. Like, okay. I'll listen. I'll give it a shot. Yeah. So anyway, so I was listening to it. I mean, I was thinking about it. I wasn't listening to it. And my son, the one who I said is, you know, was severely dyslexic and, he went to culinary school after graduating high school and then he went to London to cook there and now he came back and now he's in Nashville cooking at a restaurant called Husk, which is an amazing place at Sean Brock's restaurant. And I got a call that every parent wants to get, I thought, which was, mom, you wouldn't believe how great the kitchen is and there's a charcuterie room and there's a grill and a smoker and this huge kitchen and there's so many people and the food, mom, the hoe cakes and the pimento cheese. And like they do an elevated version of all this kind of like Southern Appalachian food. But he was so excited. And he's not someone that expresses excitement a lot, or at least not to adults. I, I think he's like that with his peers. But the reason that that call was so important was because I drank and used for the first halves of their lives. Like, you know, not all the way through because it started while they were little, but you know, ages like seven, eight, nine, and 10, I did my best to be present. I thought I was drinking to show up for them. But the truth was I was buffering myself from everything. So I was not the kind of mom that I thought I was. I was not a great mom then. Even though I showed up and did these things that looked like I was a great mom, I wasn't. And the other piece of that is that I was risking death every night because I was taking pills and washing them down with booze. So is very likely that I didn't wake up the next day several times. I didn't know that at the time, but you know, I think probably if I had done a little research, I would have figured it out. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't want to know. Right. So after I got sober, and I got sober because I was afraid that during my divorce, he would use my alcoholism and take them from me, which he would have had every right to. You know, If I had continued on, I hope he would have taken them from me because I wouldn't have been fit to raise them. But I got sober because I could see that the train was heading that direction and I wanted to get off before it you know, got to the last stop. And I got to be 
you know, this mom that I always wanted to be, the mom that I drank and used to show up to be that, you know, mm. prevented me from being this really present, attentive, you know, mom who is, I was everywhere they were before, but I was really there afterward. And I could see them relax. Like I could see them not worry about me. And I don't know how much they knew because I did most of what I did after they fell asleep. But I know that they felt that shift. I know they felt safer. And I was able to stay connected with my ex-husband and really raise them together with him. And, you know, as a result, I have these beautiful, confident, sweet, affectionate kids who love their parents, who love being around both of us, who feel safe with us. Their security is evident when they're out there in the world. They are not kids who grew up in a way that where they felt unsafe. And I know that they did for a while, but I think the way that I showed up, I was able to turn that around for them and give them that. And they're not kids who are mourning the fact that they don't have a mother anymore. Right. They don't have to spend, you know, every May dreading Mother's Day because their mom's not around. Mm -hmm. You know, they get to be with me and celebrate me and, You know, so getting that phone call from Miles was just like I had to pull over and I had tears in my eyes and think about what I could have missed. Yeah. You know, or how I could have damaged them and made it so that he wouldn't be able to call anybody or he wouldn't be there, period. You know? Right. So I don't know if that's exactly what she meant, but that's that's a pretty powerful way to be showing up as a shameless mom. So (laughs) really appreciate that, that story and that huge example. So tell listeners where they can find your work and connect with you. We'll have everything linked up in the show notes, but where would you like people to, obviously the podcast and then anywhere else you'd like to send people? Yeah, well, I have a website that's theonlyonepod.com and that actually has a link to everything, um, the podcast, the articles, et cetera. But on Instagram, I'm official underscore Cathcart Robbins, that's C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T. And then Robbins with two B's on Twitter. I'm Elsie Robbins and Facebook. I'm Laura Cathcart Robbins. Okay. I think that's it. Got it. I will link all that in the show notes and make sure people can connect with you. So I just tremendously, tremendously appreciate you being here today. And I have such respect for all the ways that you're showing up and sharing yourself. And I love that you're like, I'm taking this experience and turning it into a business. (laughs) That I think is the most powerful thing a woman can do. So I just want to give you huge accolades for that as well. Laura, this has been a gift and I really appreciate the time that you've given us today and the sharing as well. It's opened up, I know, just many people's hearts today. So thank you. Thank you. Before we wrap for today, one final reminder to text the word shameless to 33777 so that you will get all the information and details on our Christmas in July special where you will have access to Momentum Mamas and Shameless MomCon 2020. Again, just text the word shameless to 33777. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash 
Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be Shameless Mom of the Week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.